comfortable with their domestic equity and bond portfolios because they tend to thrive during periods of economic growth and low inflation. And we don't blame you. It's been a great ride. But it's a big world out there, full of opportunities you may be ignoring. Sadly, we live in a world dominated by a fear of missing out, or FOMO. And in the last 10 years, U.S. equities and bonds have outperformed and generated massive amounts of FOMO. This hasn't always been the case. In the mid-2000s, the best-performing markets were international equities, especially emerging markets, gold and commodities. So what happens if growth collapses and inflation becomes the new norm? Or what if the U.S. dollar collapses and U.S. assets are no longer attractive? What will the new FOMO markets be? And will your portfolio keep up or be left behind? Enter Rational Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund, ticker RDMIX, a strategy that is designed to thrive across different markets and economic regimes. Unlike most traditional strategies that keep allocation static and let volatility happen, Adaptive Asset Allocation applies a proprietary systematic process designed to dynamically transition toward thriving asset classes and eliminate those that are not, all the while aiming for consistent volatility and stable returns. There's almost always a bull market somewhere in the world. Don't let yesterday's FOMO get in the way of tomorrow's opportunities. Instead, let Adaptive Asset Allocation help you fill in your domestic portfolio gaps. To learn more, visit RationalMF.com and check out the Rational Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund. Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Mike Philbrick, Adam Butler, Rodrigo Gordillo are principals of Resolve Asset Management Global. Due to industry regulations, no funds managed or sub-advised by the host will be discussed in this podcast. All opinions expressed by the host are solely their own opinion and do not express the opinion of Resolve Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as basis for investment decisions. For more information, visit investresolve.com. All right, all right, all right. Welcome, everybody. And our one of our favorite guests here today, Jeff Winnegar. Hey. How are you, sir? I like being the one. Am I one of the favorites or am I the favorite now you're pushing it you're one of now, you're, now you're maybe uh, pushing it. <laughs> hey i'll now, take you it just that's a nice thing notch, to, i think it's <laughs> very nice to say that it's good seeing you guys good to so see you too you, those who, who don't know jeff is a uh, head of equity strategy at wisdom tree very very knowledgeable has a lot of interesting things to say very active on twitter so uh, always happy to have him on um given that our uh, our favorite um co-host for disclaimers isn't here I guess I'll have to do it. Just make sure that anybody listening, you know, this is for entertainment purposes only. It shouldn't be seen as investment advice. If you want investment advice, talk to your advisor or do your own homework. We're just a couple guys, a few guys here talking about global macro. And, um, you know, we, whatever we say, we might change our minds within a day. So make sure you're getting your own advice at home. Uh, Mike will be joining us in a few minutes. He's just in transition right now. But uh, in the meantime, Jeff, what's going on, buddy? What's not new? much. I just sit, you know, do it, doing my thing day in, day out, doing what we love, studying markets, trying to figure out what the, the, the oracles that move our monetary mechanisms will do next, since that's basically the, the entire calculus of all of this. And doing, doing research on dividends at Wisdom Tree, that type of thing. 
And what is going on that, in markets? It, <laughs> These days, a broad but, question. Yeah, I mean, it's it's um, you know, you you start to wonder about what we saw there in the last, you know, I guess the eight weeks up until a few weeks ago in late summer there, where it looks like in retrospect, maybe that was a bear market rally. We're not quite sure. It certainly has the looks of it. It's a market that is completely relying on interest rate directionality. Um, I mean, it should be, it should be generally speaking, every asset should be a function of whatever rates are generally something of some maturity, you would hope like a 10 year, um, something like that. But I mean, man, this has been a, a year where everything truly is tied at the hip to whatever's happening in the bond market. You know, my wife earlier asked me, what, where do you think interest rates are headed? I'm like, well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't have the foggiest idea where interest rates are headed next. It's, um, you know, part of me keeps thinking that, that um, what, what the Federal Reserve is doing, dragging all these other central banks along with it, that that pivot needs to, to at some point come because I've got a got 100 charts over here on this screen that I look at every day for the tweet, the tweets and all of that jazz. And a lot of the inflation leading indicators are pointing down. Um, I don't know really what will paralyze yeah. sticky inflation here. We'll have to see. Yeah, I think it's, it's first of all, I mean, we haven't seen this type of sticky inflation or inflationary problems since in the 70s, right? Mm-hmm. Where it ended kind of nastily in 1981. But certainly what we can say is that the Fed has a pretty, if you, if you don't want to fight the Fed, the Fed has a pretty significant signal out there right now. And it's, mm-hmm. we're going to raise rates for longer. And sadly, the inflation data is not coming in strong and uh, weak enough um, for them to even consider a pivot. It's kind of validating their current approach. I think that's an interesting thing. It really is like, oh shit, this is a, this is something that the Fed can't pivot yet. Maybe we're, we'll push out those those who were dovish might be pushing out their expectations of a pivot uh, a few months out. Um, yeah. And also and they have a credibility be, issue, right? Yeah, there I mean, seems to be two camps. That's exactly the point, Rod. There seems to be two camps right now. Uh, some people think that all that we need is for something to start to break in the market for the Fed to finally pivot or to finally start to change the tone from hawkish to maybe neutral and, and hopefully it's dovish at some point or less hopefully to simple. Whereas others are like they were so behind the curve and credibility was so much in question that right now there's no there's no easy solutions. There's no easy outs. They're going to have to tighten. And the only acceptable CPI print is going to be two percent so until we're headed in that direction or can see the light at the end of the tunnel there's no way for them to 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 soften their stance where do you stand on those two camps are you somewhere in the middle yeah it's i don't know you know this two percent that you mentioned they just pulled that out of thin air optimal inflation is supposed to be in the absence of these monetary manipulators it should be negative that through time with the advancement of humankind, prices for everything should ever so gently decline just as we become more sophisticated at operating our own businesses. When I think about U.S. inflation at 8.3, I mean, one of the things about it is the way that inflation is calculated too. I mean, that number that we see for August year-over-year inflation is not really, it's kind of magical. 
it's, it's you know, put your finger in the air and try to figure it out because you have a lot of variables in there that are severe lags. The owner's equivalent rent, rent numbers are not indicative of what is occurring at any given time. Certainly not now. It lags six months at least, right? Or, or 12 months. It's, yeah. it, it could be anything. I mean, yeah, I was going to go down a path of nothing really making new highs in any of the inflation indicators, but let's take this direction anyway. It, it, it's a peculiar situation here in Illinois. Um, the Illinois Association of Realtors reported that, I can't remember there was the city of Chicago or the state of Illinois. One of them was down 4.1% in the month of July alone on home prices. The other was down 4.7%. Which is funny because nobody's writing articles about Illinois home prices right now in terms of the housing crisis people. They're all talking about Boise and Salt Lake and Phoenix here in the United States. In Canada, there's some question marks on Toronto and, and Vancouver. But I'm thinking, well, huh, that's interesting. we got home price deflation, at least short term here in Illinois, the sixth most populous state, and certainly much of California, which is something like one out of every six Americans. But the shelter components of CPI, the first digit on the year over year is still a six, 6.7 or something. When you combine the, the rent and the, the owner's equivalent rent, which is what you, Rod, the owner would rent out your own dwelling to a renter if you were landlording your own house, which makes no sense, but that's how they ask it. Yeah. But we do know that, okay, even if you have an Orange County house, where it's now soft and maybe the prices are down five, 10, it, it depends on who you ask. You don't really know five or 10% from the peak in the spring out there in California. The reality is, is that year over year, they're still up something double digits. That's right. Well, that's, that's, that's the big the question. Year over year, nearly everything is up double digits, right? Right. And so it's, it's, it's a situation where everybody knows wink and a nod that if you're in San Francisco or Austin Certainly the ones I was just talking about, you know, Vegas, home prices are down in the last 30, 60, 90, maybe 120 days, depending on the city. Mm-hmm. But those shelter components of CPI still need to pick up the old data. And so, and now Powell, Jay Powell, Federal Reserve Chair, is in, a, is in one heck of a little dilemma because what they started doing maybe what, Richard, two meetings ago or so, started talking openly CPI. In the Q&A, they're supposed to talk PCE deflator. PCE, that's right. Right. The PCE being the Fed's preferred measure of inflation. Here in our society, we are so drowned in information that we have multiple measures of inflation to go by. Pick one, whichever one fits your thesis best. And so in the Q&A, let's say late spring, early summer, Powell started opening his mouth and doing some CPI rhetoric. So now he's in this peculiar situation where a lot of things are now at least coming off the boil from where they were June or July. But we are still going to have a situation where you're sitting out there in a Salt Lake City house where the the home prices are coming down in September and October, November, but the shelter components of CPI are still going up. And this guy is sitting here telling everybody, I got to wait till 2% CPI. But these, but these metrics are still trying to capture 2021 data into 2023, and you end up with here we are, just weeks before Halloween here, and talking about a four-handle on Fed funds, despite the fact that what I was going to start to say is I can't think of many things that are going up 
right now. I, I mean, look, let's, let's just understand that this is a long-term target that the Fed wants, right? I mean, just yeah. because we're, what they're doing is, is in, in effect working. We're going from a, a peak inflation rate to a lower inflation rate and not as low as people thought. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Like in terms of the reading, what is it? It's lagging. You know, housing will probably start. We'll start seeing into the data in early 2023, if not late, later in mid-2023 in terms mm-hmm. of housing. Um, I would imagine the Fed, like I, I know we all want to like, be down to the Fed and that they don't know what they're doing, but there's no way that they don't know that a lot of this data is lagging, right? They're, they're data dependent, but I cannot imagine that they're, they're just looking at, they're waiting for every month's print on the CPI, understanding that it's a little late and not, and not taking that into account. Not only that the data is lagging, but also that the effects of their monetary policy lags six to 12 months, depending on the, the, the measure that you're taking. But to, to your point about the multiple measures of inflation and the fact that it's not just PCE, but actually core PCE, right? You're trying to exclude food and energy prices. But mm-hmm. you have seen uh, 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 inflation starting to creep into stickier parts of the economy. So, so how do you square that? I mean, the, the, the inflationary figures are starting to push into areas like you're talking about rent and, and other areas that could be a little more a little bit more entrenched, if you will. Well, and rent is, is to me, um, because I've gotten bearish on housing lately, um, rent is to me, and rental vacancy, the, the situation on that front where basically there is no vacancy. And it, it, that's the back of the envelope on it is the long-term chart on months, months' supply of rental vacancies has been going down. The housing bulls have a very good point on that. Good yeah. luck finding an apartment to rent. And that's anywhere. That doesn't, you know, that's not no, any. We're at, we're, at, we're at historic lows. I mean, the average yeah. inventory in the United States for a healthy inventory apparently is two to two and a half million. We're at 1.2 as of September, right? Yeah, so there's, there's a, there is a supply issue here that need, that is, I think, been overwhelming the demand discussion a bit more as we see year over year prices up. Hey, Mike. There he is. We're, we're on housing here, buddy. Hello, Welcome. hello. All right. What did I miss? There he is. Well, one of the we're just on I, housing here. How's my how's my audio? I'll let you guys get, chat and I'll catch you're up. Good, you're good. Yeah, we're going to get perfect. Mike right into the mix. It'll take oh, yeah. 12 seconds to, to pick right up with this. <laughs> well, one thing is that there's going to be, um, we're at a record number of multifamily units that are in a state of being constructed right now. So that mm-hmm. will hit the market. It's just a matter of how much that will dent that. But um, do you know what the... Oops, he looks like he froze right there. It, it's something like 1.8 million units on multifamily. Is Rodrigo frozen or am I frozen? No, he is frozen. He, he was, was the only one frozen. My internet's been going in and out all day, so expect that throughout. <laughs> but there's there's a few things that, that concern me um, uh, about this. One is, well, let's see which direction you guys want me to go. You want me to talk about buyer and seller um, psychology? Sure. Uh, which is, a, I got a really oh, cool yeah. thing. I got a really I cool love, idea. I love okay, that, okay. Yeah. And then remind me to talk Tina trade. There is no alternative to zero interest sure. rate. Okay, okay. Uh, that for the viewer, the Tina, T-I-N-A. There is no alternative to the thesis that died a year ago. Okay, so. <laughs> well, December 31st, 21. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> um, 
and and I say this as you get so many different responses, especially in social media, depending on whether someone is overweight housing or underweight housing. Right. There's there is a, almost a defensiveness to what we're trying to do here, which I think is cold, hard calculus on an asset, just like I do with dividend stocks rolled to the S&P at the tree. Right. And. You are net short housing if you are a renter and you're rooting for this thing to come apart and you are net long housing. The longer ago you bought this thing because it's a greater proportion of your net worth and you can see it in the responses. And I don't really have a a dog in this fight because I think my own net worth is really contingent on whether or not value beats growth because I'm I'm at a dividend <laughs> shop. <laughs> exactly. Um you know, it's kind of like if the stock market rips higher in the next 10 or 15 years, my career will probably underperform because that would seemingly be a stock market that rewards speculative companies. But if it's a, you know, a regular, heaven forbid, a regular stock market, my own career will probably be an outperformance relative to other people because I'm joined a firm that's waiting by something that's not very, very exciting. The dividends. Your, your point being that you are, you don't have a dog in this fight. Your, your yeah, interest is elsewhere. You're looking at a cold, hard data and your view is right. like, I'm not a, a realtor right now. I'm not a realtor. I don't have, we don't have, a, you know, we're not have any serious assets and apartment rates, long, short, or any of this stuff. But you know, the example I, I try to give, cause it's like back of the envelope. And I think this back, of the envelope makes a whole lot of sense to me is that, right. So you have, um, a city and, and Mike, how, how many houses are for sale in that, in that city? Just give me some mid-sized cities. Like, uh, give me, just oh, give me a number. Know. Uh, I, you know, I kind of, I was doing one earlier. I was thinking like a thousand houses. Yeah. Sure. Some city. Like in Cayman Islands right now, we have like, you know, uh, I think the inventory is at its lowest and it's like 600,000. Uh, sorry, not 600,000, 60,000 units, right? Is what is, uh, and that's really low compared to, to historical norms, which would be around 100,000. Okay. Okay. So just think about how many units, like, okay, so you have, you know, like a thousand, like, let's say, let's say it's a small town, like a neighbor, like a, almost like a few neighborhoods or something like a few square miles or something, but densely populated. Let's say there's a hundred houses for sale in uh, 2018 or 2019. And then like COVID comes along and everybody's just buying you know, bidding wars and all that stuff. And there's only at any given time you log on in, in the zip codes you're looking to buy in. So like there's 30 or 40 houses to pick from. And that's been going on for the last couple of years. And now things are like back to normal. We're at a hundred houses for sale because that's, that's pretty much been what I've seen. You know, we're just doing these round numbers, but this is pretty much what I saw when I, type these in for most cities all across the United States. So it used to be a hundred houses and it got down to 30 or 40 houses. Now there's a hundred houses. But what I point out is, okay, you're the seller of one of those hundred houses. And so that house is sitting there on Redfin and I can look at it and I can flip through it and you've listed it. Now you could take that off the market, but once you put it back on, everybody in the neighborhood knows you did that. And you had a, some problem. Did you have mold in that house? Was the roof busted up and the and the uh, and the home inspector? Why did you take it off the market and put it back and put it back on sixty days later? Some, what happened? 
I don't know. Raccoons. Right. And, and it's like, then you get me, somebody like me walking through. I don't know anything about home inspection. And I'm wondering why this thing got pulled off the market and back on. All right. So you can't do that. So once this thing is listed, round number $500,000, now it's on there. Now you're, you're what, what you might say in poker, you're pot committed. Now, if it was still 2018 or 2019, like let's say we're, you, you, know, you walk in, you get a four, four and a half percent mortgage. Then that's cool. You've got a hundred potential buyers. There's a hundred sellers. There's a hundred buyers. These things are going to move in a few months time, but that's not the case because some percentage of those buyers of your existing homes, whatever percentage of that stock is, is an existing home are move up buyers or move sideways buyers or move across the country buyers at the same price point. And the problem is, is this is like, I mean, this isn't to me, this isn't tough. This is just Jeff talking to the other mothers and fathers at the soccer games. They all got two and seven eighths that they refied during COVID. Okay. So they're not going to be the move up or the move sideways exactly. buyer. They're going to be the, I'm staying here because I've got 28 years left on this thing that I refied in the first or second quarter of 2020. And I don't have to do anything, but you you listed that thing on the MLS. Now you have to do something. You, the seller, have acted. You're one of the hundred houses that are that are listed, and you all need to do something. And you, what that thing is, is you need to slash the price because there's not a hundred buyers anymore. There's ten or twenty or whatever the number is because I don't know what the number is. But what what I think is lost in all this, and I don't want to go on a big I'm realizing I'm going on like a, a rant here with you guys, is I don't think that mortgage amortization math is comprehended by 99% of society. But because I, yeah. I have, go ahead. Ralph. No. So, so I, I, I agree. Like more mortgage is going from two and a bit to six, 6.2. I think it's where it picked. Something 6. like 3. that. Um, has a lot of repercussions across the board, right? From home builders to, to home purchasers. Indeed, there's going to be less inventory, because there's going to be people that have locked in a 28-year mortgage that don't want to have to figure out and refinance that as they move to the new house, right? So right. again, we go back to this, what is what is more powerful right now? Is it the, the supply side or the demand side, right? Mm-hmm. Because again, what you just articulated is the supply side going down. And that's what we're seeing, right? Like we're, see, we're seeing people, less people willing to go and buy. We're seeing home uh, the ability to get a mortgage more expensive. We're seeing home builders not having pre-approved people at two and a half. Mm-hmm. And then when they're finally building it on, ready to go, you know, they're coming in and saying, I can't actually, the bank won't approve me at six, at six points. Yeah. Right. So I'm not going to be able to do that. So home builders are building less because they see the risk of mm-hmm. not being able to fulfill future home sales. Right. So I'm kind of seeing a lot of inventory issues and, and that is overwhelming the demand issues. Now at some point that'll break. Right. At some point, mm. it's, it's exactly what the Fed's trying to do across the board. They're trying to the, break the back of demand for everything. And mm. that will include mortgages. And, and so I think there will be a point where there's going to be a bit more inventory and there's going to be less demand. But it's still, as you were saying, if you look at the year over year numbers, the month over month, yes, a lot of yeah. prices are down. Year over year numbers, we're still seeing double digits. Right. Um, so, it, it, and then it'll be interesting to see what, when that 
quote unquote breaks. I think it's, it's going to be a while. We got to get those inventories up. Right. Well, and it, it, you well, know, it's do, do we though? Like it isn't, isn't, in my mind, the housing market is no different than any other market. The marginal buyer or seller creates the last print of the price. Mm. And so I, I look at this and say, I don't really care. It, it, the inventory doesn't really matter to me. You can have lots of inventory. You can have no inventory. If the marginal seller can no longer buy and the, if the marginal buyer can no longer buy and the marginal seller is motivated, you have a market where you'll have significant price declines and we haven't seen any improvement in affordability. The decline in housing prices have been offset by the increase in the costs of the interest costs of the, the, the mortgage payment. Further, you have the behavioral barrier of, wait a second, I was just doing this at X dollars in, in payment with interest and now it's Y dollars and it's just more. And I don't want to move now that it's more. So, like so, I, I, so, behaviorally, so I would say two I things about, I would say two things about that, that marginal buyer um, that's different in home, uh, in, in home buying than it is in stock buying. What if I were to say that I'm going to buy back 50% of my stock in, 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 in my company and I'm a public company, what would happen to the price? Same demand. But now I'm going to buy back inventory. I'm going to reduce the inventory, the, the, the amount of shares that exist in the market. Prices are going to go up, right? Like there, this doesn't happen in stocks. Broadly speaking, you have a similar float. In housing, inventories matter, right? In housing, inventories matter. It also, there's a second thing. The marginal buyer also matters. It does. I'm, I'm, not, saying, I'm not saying one uh, trumps the other. I'm saying one is trumping the other right now, and it's lack of inventory. If you look at the data, long-term data, like I see Jeff, what you're putting up is more like shorter term stuff. The last couple of months, right. You're seeing a bit of a weakness here month over month, but year over year, it's still fairly tight. Mm -hmm. And because of that, this is going back to the CPI, you know, 40 or 50% of of, uh, the CPI comes from shelter. Right. And so that's not going to seep into the market for a while either. And and this is all due to this unhealthy market of, of, from the supply side. Um, And people will need. And is this widespread? Jeff, is this like something that you're seeing pockets of across the country, or is this sort of a, a, a more generalizable trend that you're you're noticing? Bull trend? No, I mean the the concerns that you have with the housing market right now. Yeah, it's it's my national based concerns, and, and I mean, I we always want to appreciate. I mean, really, what are we what are we doing for a living? Is assessing other people's emotions. That's pretty much what we do for a living. We try to do it with charts, (laughs) macro charts to gauge whether or not the next person is more freaked or less freaked than we ourselves are. And I mean, think I'm now racking my brain as to when that guy and all the rest of those meme stock people became Insta famous by bidding up the value of companies that had jokes of business models. And that was in recent memory. And that's because U.S. money supply was going through the absolute roof. And, you know, electric vehicle company at a trillion dollars, well, what the heck? Let's go for it. Um, And zero interest rate policy, well, they've been doing that since 
since Lehman went under, I have no reason to believe that they'll ever stop doing that because, hey, guess what? All these modern monetary theorists are now who are quack economists famous. <laughs> and they've gone from the fringe to the establishment in, uh, in a so, season. And so the NASDAQ is going higher and uh, I'm going to come up with some cockamamie thesis as to why I'm going to justify a 3% cap rate on some apartment because I can do that because, well, I can get zero in a passbook savings account or I can get 3% on this Brooklyn apartment. And don't you know, home prices only only go up, even though we just saw inside the last generation that they very well can go down, but I totally forgot that anyway, somehow. And so let's go for it. And then suddenly the rug has been totally pulled as surprise, surprise, rampant money inflation did end up creating inflation. And now suddenly overnight money is on the threshold of maybe being 4%. And one of the things I think about, you know, just in terms of some of these assets that are predicated on perpetual Tina, we're going to come back to Tina here, Mike. Mm-hmm. There is no alternative in a, in a neg- in $19 trillion worth of negative bond yields, which was the case past tense, now no longer the case. You can only get a negative yielding bond in Japan at this point and not even across the entire Japanese curve, just, to, you know, within a few years, essentially. It's like negative seven basis points on a two-year JGB. And in the U.S., on a two-year note, which is, of course, a security that's very sensitive to Fed funds, you're at three and three quarters. And in Canada, you're also at three and three quarters um, on two years. And so, okay, I was thinking about buying some stock at 50 times earnings. Great future, I'm told, by their investor relations person. (laughs) And so at, at, at zero... On short, short and shortish term money, let's go for it, goes the refrain, which is why the NASDAQ crushed everything from 09 to late 21. As Mike pointed out, as Mike was talking about December 21, I kind of think of November 21 or mincing months here as to when the top of the psychology changed. So the NASDAQ is the problem child of this market. Um, Tina justifications for assets that are, you know, Like, let's take that. Like, this is what I keep. I can't get my mind around this. I've never been a landlord in my life. I have no plan of ever doing it. And I understand you can get a management company and all that to take the headaches off your hands. Let's say I don't get a management company. Why why do I want to deal with this? Why do I want to clip a four and a half or five percent rental yield? I don't know. In Chicago, I don't know what you get. Four and a half or five. I can get three and three quarters on a two year treasury right now. I get the math. I get somebody saying it when it was zero for a savings. But now I'm no, I have no quote unquote equity risk premium here anymore on this annoying. I, this is what I think of when I think of landlording. I think I'm sitting there on December 24th, having a big meal with my family, kids begging me to open up presents. And then the phone rings and some guy tells me that the toilet needs a plumber to come in there and fix it. That's what landlording is to me. Now, I could be wrong. All right. But I'm just Can I, may, I, may I tell you why? Okay. Can I tell yes. you? Because like, there's a few things here. It's totally, if you're comparing apples to apples, you got cash at 3%, you got a cap rate at 3%. One's volatile, one's not, one's problematic, the other one isn't. Obviously, you're going to go for cash, right? I think what's missing here, and the reason that people do it is leverage. 
right? You can, yeah. this is the one asset class where banks are willing to give you as much leverage as you want, as long as you have a good credit and you have some properties and we can get it back. And so if you're levering up 50% loan of value, right? Mm -hmm. Now that yield on your initial investment is maybe not double because you have to pay some interest rates, but you're, you're increasing your return, right? The other thing it's, it feels solid from a behavior we're talking about, we're all animals and we're all human. People, especially Latin Americans, love to be able to touch their stuff and say, I own that property, right? Versus mm -hmm. the zeros and ones in a computer in my uh, uh, qualified account portfolio. So that's the second thing. I think people like to see yeah. brick and mortar. Um, and uh, yeah, so when you put those two things together and you, you see the, the ability to, in a worst case scenario, everything crashes, you still own land that's going to be the reason why real estate will always be a place to go. Yeah, right? You know, it's and, interesting with the, you, you know, what you mentioned with the cultural affinity, oh, yeah. it's, it's, it's yeah. oftentimes the, the, the immigrant's dream. I will arrive in Miami, you know, um, you know, like my wife's family from Colombia, for example, um, let's oh, get yeah. to Florida. Let's first things first, let's get to Florida. Second thing. Second, what is the American dream owning a physical thing. And it's because of the, maybe it's because of the history of Latin inflation and hyperinflation. We've seen it in very recent memory within the last two generations, certainly in Brazil. Argentina yeah. just raised their rate by 75%. Yeah. Venezuela. I mean, just hit a, throw a rock. You'll hit yeah. three countries that have had an inflationary uh, event in the last couple of decades. Yeah. So, yeah. Absolutely. Certainly, certainly uh, the, the Venezuelan experience where there has been so much of that money has arrived and, and, manifested in Miami property prices. And I do think that there's some of that. Um, and, and perhaps, you know, it's, it's just that, and maybe, maybe that is the, the new psychological thing. And I could be very wrong, but this experience with a 9% CPI gets people. Yeah. I'll also say one other thing, right? One reason why people have preferred real estate and why that's gotten, you know, out of control, maybe from, from a percentage of, of dollars allocated, it's because it's most people, I swear to you, Jeff, most people don't even think about the cap rate and yeah, what, oh, what the yield is. They just know, because it's true, that they're going to make 20% a year off the property by capital appreciation alone. I can't tell you the amount of people I know that just own property and have like a cleaning lady come in and maintain it because they don't want the headache of having to rent it out. So they're right. getting no yield on their property wow. and they're getting, we're talking about mostly we're from Toronto, right? So a lot of Toronto people do that. Um, obviously that's going to change soon, right? Like what, I guess your point is interest rates matter, mm -hmm. right? And, and the higher the cost to borrow of a mortgage rate as, as that gets higher, if you have to refinance, which is more the case in Canada than it is in the U S right? So we're seeing the pain. We're seeing real housing downward crashes in all across Canada, because in Canada, most mortgages are five-year uh, renewable or 10-year max, right? So people are, are refinancing at a higher rate and they're saying, crap, I can't afford my mortgage anymore. I'm going to have to downsize, right? I'm going to have to sell my house. So there's a lot more sell pressure there. And so what you're going to see is a, 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 a structural change in behavior of I buy because I know I'm going to make 20% annualized to well, we might flatline here for a while. What's my yield, yeah. right? And that'll be that'll be a change in, in attitude towards real estate, likely. It'll, it'll just take longer, I think, in the U.S. because well, and, of that 30-year uh, thing. 
and and I wonder if we will have a change in attitude towards a lot of assets. You guys know I'm a, I, I, I've been like talking about Japan for, for a yeah, while. Yeah, let's talk about that. And um, I mean, look, Japan has its issues, right? I mean, with the, the cross shareholding issues and the, the complete lack of willingness to pay out a dividend from, from your cash stockpile on your balance sheet. Um, but there's, there's only one central bank that's not throwing bricks at our faces like Jay Powell has, right? And, and like Christine Lagarde, I mean, you know, can you imagine the situation where European economy is for all intents and purposes in a recession? Um, and the source of inflation there, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't want to take away from the European monetary ramp of 2020 and 2021 also, but is it out? It's, it's electricity and natural gas Structural, right now. Yeah. And you're going to restrict credit to the tune of 75 basis points for one reason and one reason only. It's not because you want to, it's because Jay Powell's forcing your hand because your, your currency just fell down to parity against the greenback when in recent memory, this last what, year ago it was a buck 15. And so now you are the ECB and you're tightening policy into this. I mean, every chart, every single chart, it's like just, you know, change, change your axis to rescale the chart because it's now at a new low, whatever economic indicator it is in Europe. Well, the only one that's not doing it is the Bank of Japan, which is basically doing the, the proverbial hold my beer thing, right? With yield curve control and the 10 year JGB at 25 basis points. And so that's almost like a situation where if you conceptualize even a, a five or 10 year situation where Japanese earnings don't grow at all, but if the price earnings multiple is say 13 on an MSCI Japan or something like that, you have a seven or an eight on an earnings yield, then that's seven or 800 over the entire Japanese yield curve. To what and extent so, though, so why does this, that, does this why Japanese dynamic? <laughs> Go ahead, Richard. I, I want to come back to housing. Okay, okay. <laughs> let's, 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 go ahead, Richard. No, I was just wondering, to what extent do you think this uh, dynamic in Japan has to do with the fact that most of the uh, government debt is held internally by mm -hmm. their pension plans and it's not held internationally like it is a case for, for the Fed? And, and we are seeing some of this uh, uh, play out in the yen as well. So it's not like this is uh, happening mm -hmm. without any consequences for Japan. I mean, they, they have their demographic issues. They've been having them for a while. And now they, they, they find themselves unable to raise rates because, first of all, they don't have any growth. Inflation mm -hmm. hasn't really picked up and they don't see an out. Right. Is there an alternative to, to what they're doing? I mean, Japan has about 10 big, broad, flashing signs that say, stay away. I mean, the, the debt burden, the debt burden in Japan has been for, for generations, the highest debt roll to GDP, the highest of any of anywhere. Um, and yeah, there is not really any institute, foreign uh, institutional ownership of, of Japanese assets to the same extent that it ha happens in say the, the United States. Um, we don't, for example, speak to the advisor community in the U.S. and they start asking about JGBs. That's not a thing. Americans don't own JGBs, Japanese government bonds, for example. Now, now, Richard, what you pointed out, I'd have to pull up on the quote, but I, yen was at 144 last I saw. So forgive me if I'm a little bit off. Maybe you guys can enlighten me if it's not 144 right now. Um, 
which is notably weak. So it, it, the way you might be engaging a, a, a Japan fund, and of course, this is you know coming from the wisdom tree person who has got a lot of Japanese funds. Uh, to the extent that you were long Japanese stocks and you were not hedging the currency, then there's been large declines in those funds because the yen in the last two years has gone from 103 to 144. That is the yen collapsing. And I think the C word collapse is the apt term to describe a G7 nation witnessing its currency. I, imagine if the Canadian dollar was at a dollar oh three and then we woke up in two years and it was 144. That's wild. That would be a wild move. Now just do it at the yen, 103 to 144, right? Or or if sterling, you know, 115 a year from now is like, you know, a buck, uh, 150 or 70. I mean, these are the types of moves, right? Yeah, so it's, it's been a 25% decline over the last year. Yeah. And so, well, there's there's a few ways to, to, to think about this. One, the, the bear case on Japanese equities is suddenly inflation percolates because think about it, you're buying US dollar goods, let's say, right? Or or basically anybody else's goods because the yen has been the weakest in the last year or two. And so now as that stuff arrives in Japan, whoops, now Japan for the first time has inflation. Uh, just at the time that maybe our thesis is, is that inflation is rolling over in the US. And now you have that quirky situation where why do I want to own Japanese stocks when now the BOJ Bank of Japan is giving us a hawkish surprise that is in no one's calculus? That could be the play out on that one. The other side of it is, wow, look how remarkably competitive it is to hire Japanese rather than hiring American. And I can't begin to express this. Now, look, Japanese have spent the last 15 or 20 years doing what a lot of others did, which is moving the industrial base to China. So it's not really like if it was 1980 or 1990 and the yen fell out of bed. And let's say just to take the, the, the cliche of auto manufacturing, 100 percent of it is in. No, it's not. It's in Tennessee. Right. It's in Ohio. So it's not like. You get all of that benefit from the from the wage arbitrage, but you get a good chunk of it. And you know, the, the now I've got to try to think of these numbers from the OECD. Because since I did it, the yen has moved and gotten even weaker. But basically the way it works is this. Let's say I think the year was 2012 when I did this. I got the chart somewhere out there on Twitter. In 2012, the average American was making like 45,000. And the average Japanese was making like 45,000 plus or minus five. I think the Japanese were maybe 5,000 under. And then what happened is, and this is difficult for, you know, I, I'm an American. So this is difficult for American. I think this is difficult for Canadians to conceptualize too. When I say wages went up, we always talk about wages stagnating. Wages did go up, just not a lot in the U.S. and Canada. You know, here, here's your 3% raise. Merry Christmas. You know, come on. Right. But three percent every year for 10 years is real money. It's not keeping up with inflation. But whatever you were making back there at forty five thousand, it's now something like seventy five thousand. Maybe went from 50 to 75 or whatever the number was, making three or four percent raises every year. So now the typical Americans making 75K. This is as of 21, 2021. But in Japan. 
I mean, you don't make any, you don't get a raise. This is the thing. We, we talk to people in tech. It's like, I'm making the exact same amount I was making in 1995. I think it's like, that's what you hear. So wages hanging tight at this level for all these years, maybe, maybe 1% wage growth, who knows? But the yen 10 years ago was in the seventies. And now the yen's at 144, maybe it's 142, whatever it is. And so when I did this like two or three weeks ago, it was coming out to something like 27,000 US dollars for the average Japanese wage. And the Americans making 75K. So it's threefold to hire American in a strong dollar regime than to hire Japanese. And you hear this type of thing. And I was talking to a guy and he said, why would I, uh, I'm in a sleepy town in Spain. I can have PhDs for what I can hire bachelor's degrees back in Chicago. Well, it's the same. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. You know, if you need labor and you're really willing to deal with, you know, in many cases, when, when you need official documents done in Japan, it's like a stamp and ink in 2022 rather than e-signing on your computer. So it's, it's Japan. But still, there's this massive wage arbitrage that has opened up and nobody talked to us about Japan. They don't want to touch it. It's like, why do I even why do I even own foreign securities? Because it's been underperforming for 15 years. It's like, yeah, that's why that's nobody right. wants to yeah. touch it. So, yeah, Meb has like, those. Yeah, Meb Faber has those charts of like the most beaten up asset classes and stocks around the world. And what happens five years later? I think Japan is. Well, Japan's been that for a while. So is Russia. Yeah. You know. But eventually... Your, they your point on uh, on wage arbitrage is interesting. I, I read something about, I think Citigroup has started to hire uh, investment banking associates out of uh, Spain. I think it was Malaga, the city. And they're mm. willing to pay... And, and, and they're paying them half of what they were paying their associates in New York. Exactly for the reason that you just described. The euro has taken a tumble, not as bad as the yen. Mm-hmm. But you're witnessing U.S. dollar wrecking ball, as they like to call it, and it's creating yeah. all these opportunities for wage arbitrage, and not just wage arbitrage, but also competitiveness in in other industries. The problem is you also have it at the same time the attempt to destroy demand. So mm-hmm. you haven't been able to see some of this uh, other uh, trade dynamics uh, play out and 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 benefit these other countries. But it's probably going to happen, right? Well, and, and, you know, what's, what's interesting about, you know, these currency wars, um, which I've started to call reverse currency wars at this point, because now it's everybody's fighting to not remember it was who's going to try to weaken the most. Now, like Christine Lagarde hiking by 75 basis points. That's a reverse currency war. That's Lagarde trying to keep the euro from going down to 90. Um, and in all of this, the, the, the thing that's in the, well, I don't think it's in the background of me, you're talking about the second largest economy in China. Um, you got a bat, you got a currency basket in China. So it's not like dollar yen where it's like 144 and then maybe tomorrow it's 140 or 148. And that wouldn't surprise me. In China, you've got this, this thing is highly manipulated. This currency basket is highly manipulated. So you have a situation where everything's weak and relative to the dollar. But the one that's really weak, and aside from like the, the real, you know, like the Turkish lira and that type of stuff, is the yen. Chinese yuan is has weakened, but just a few percentage points. And now you have a situation where China may not be competitive with Japan. 
uh, on a, on a currency uh, uh, translation effect situation. The other thing about the Chinese that I don't know if it gets enough attention and it's, you know, maybe it goes back to what, what Rod was talking about, like a sticky inflation regime that I think we need to entertain and consider. Um, okay. So, so Greenspan's going to take rates down to 1% to try to stop the dot-com crash. Right? So that's what Alan Greenspan has decided to do, which was wild. Um, and we're going to print money. Greenspan's going to do it and Bernanke's going to do it and so on. Um, well, that's, that's fine. Cause it's like a dollar an hour in China. And so as, and it's like $35, you know, for the same job in, in Ohio, I, I don't know, maybe not in the year 2000 or 2002, I guess is the reference here. 20 times the cost in Youngstown, Ohio, than whatever the, the, the manufacturing labor is in, in China in the, at the turn of the century. Well, What's the, what, what's the thing about the, the power of compounding with Einstein? What, what is it? Yeah, the, the most powerful force in the universe is compound, compound interest. Yeah. Well, you know, you like Chinese wages 10 or 15% every year for a quarter century. Guess what? China's not so cheap anymore. Yeah. And that's the thing that I'm worried about because I've got, you know, you know, I make bold statements and I, you know, I talk to you guys, but I've also been burned in markets before. I get a lot of stuff. You're just trying to get like 53 or 55% of your calls, right? It's like, it's tough. And so I've got some real cognitive dissonance with China inflation deflation because. Yeah. I mean, you got the demographic issue as well, right? So we have an aging population there no longer working. You have wages already high and less um, competitive. And a, Oh, the great thing property is market, in Japan property is that market. you sell more adult diapers than you sell children's diapers. Correct. That is the state of affairs in Japan. We should, do you in have an index? Is that, can, I pull, can I pull that up? Yep. That I think, let's guess, I think that crossed over 10 years ago. Yeah. The, the adult diapers relative to baby diapers. That was like the thing. And of course, there's the, um, there's the extrapolation that by the year... 2300 there would be no japanese left at this current rate of procreation no but with china well, i mean population collapse is what it is I mean, it's not china just japan china is, is facing this russia is facing this it's, they say it's one of the reasons why mm-hmm. they decided to to engage in this war right now is because they see this as the last chance where they still have able-bodied men to kind of deploy this sort of war eastern europe a lot mm-hmm. of the developed world is facing this precise issue that the the difference is the u.s and to some extent canada are able to attract human capital and immigration tends to uh uh, supplant what's uh what the demographic what the uh uh, birth rate what the collapse of the birth rate is is is, uh is missing out so yeah it's it's a big problem across the world can can i i want to just offer one little slant too on on the on the yen side of things sure um if you if you have from a contagion perspective, if you you've you've had this grand weakening of the yen, and if mm. you're Japanese, and as you pointed out, Richard, all of your liabilities are denominated in yen, and you hold treasuries, and those treasuries have appreciated in value tremendously, and if we enter a period where now we're going to stop the U.S. wrecking ball, the U.S. dollar wrecking ball. And you as a, a nation are aware of that, and you're going to take the yen from 140 back down. What do you do with those US treasuries? 
You're you going. Asked. Yeah, well, I, I'll <laughs> put it to you guys. What do you think you're going to do with those U.S. Yeah. treasuries? You're probably yeah. going to sell them. You're going to sell I, them I into a tightening Fed. That well, is, you're, you're going to, you're going to, yeah, you're, you're going to like your, you, the potential for contagion maybe is that it causes the U S rates to go higher because you're dumping these because you want to take that profit. You, you've got a yen liability and you, you don't want to lose this, this profit that you've had in your U S treasuries on the currency side. Mm. And, so and that's, that's part of a bigger uh, tapestry, right? I mean, that is another nail on the wall in, in, on against the treasury market. As, it, as we go to quantitative tightening, as the Fed's going to purchase less, we're going to have to have real buyers going into the market and purchasing treasuries and not purchasing credit and not purchasing stocks, right? There's There's this flood of inventory now. And Japan is just a story in the broader scheme of things in this quite quantitative tightening uh, period. So, I mean, you know, we should talk about that. I mean, what is quantitative tightening? How, what are the risks in this quantitative tightening phase that a lot of investors aren't seeing? Well, the, the primary risk is that we haven't really had to engage it at any scale because these are all, at least in the last 15 years, well, I guess more than 15 years because Japan started QE, um, back there in the 1990s. Right. But for all intents and purposes, we just invented these terms, quantitative easing and quantitative tightening. Uh, Japan was the founding founding nation in that front. Um, it, well, at this point in mid-September is when the, the QT, quantitative tightening, moves to 95 billion USD per month. Um, so that is a massive sucking sound. Now that is it a problem? Well, it's a, it's a, it's a problem for risk assets. It's not a problem if you need to get a, a dozen eggs or, or, or some bacon to put on your breakfast table when that stuff went moonshot. Eggs were up like 77% US. And so that brings things back to reality. Um, you know, what I've oftentimes put forth is, um, you know, why are these nations the, the relative havens, or at least up until this year, like why is Switzerland a haven? And why was until this year, Japan a haven? It's because your money wasn't, you know, going to get destroyed by the authorities in those countries. That's why you get it out of, out of Bolivars and get it into Swiss francs. Right. And this is why in the Nordic nations, Denmark, something like that, this is why, there's a lot of trust and order in society. This is why there's no trust and no order in Brazil uh, and South Africa relative to, to these places, relative to Japan, right? Like we, we you know, we as a society have vilified um, the, the concept of deflation. Like, oh, the Japanese can't get it together. They can't get inflation. Well, good. You also aren't going to get shot in Japan. Unless you're Abe, I guess. I mean, that's that's a you know that's probably. <laughs> but I'm talking about like you can get shot in Chicago. You're not going to get shot in Japan. And where is the disorder coming from? Why, if we run inflation at eight, nine, ten percent in the United States for the next ten years, you're going to be much more likely to get shot than zero percent. Zero percent inflation is order scarcity. And 
and yeah, and and rule of law, and trust that the monetary authorities that when you put a hundred dollars in a in a checking account that it's going to still buy you a hundred dollars worth of stuff next year. Once a distrust no. goes away, got no. Yeah. No, I mean, look, there needs to be. You need to add liquidity to the system at the rate of of uh, innovation, right? Like it can't be. If we have negative innovation and the, the world is shrinking and we're, we're actually reducing the, the broad GDP component of all the planet, then, then yeah, money supply needs to match that decrease in growth, which could well happen given the demographic situation we're in. Right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the reality is that your money supply needs to match the efficiency growth because you need to have, you need to lubricate the growth of the machine, right? This is like mm -hmm. a Euro dollar issue as well. It's one of the reasons why there were monetary issues a few years back because the U.S. wasn't supplying enough of the reserve currency globally in order to get the to have that seven percent growth in India going right. So yeah, um, so I think, I mean, what you want is the money supply to grow at the rate of growth and no more. So real rates, right? You want real rates to be matching. You want you want the the, the nominal rate to be matching the mm. uh, the money supply. And, and, and nominal rate to match um, real growth. And at that point, you're having some sort of equilibrium, right? And you can't take... Well, what's I, I also a, a think, though, Je Jeff makes a great point here about why are these particular currencies considered, uh, you know, faithful, if you will. Mm. And Macro Alf just posted a tweet on that particular point where he talks about corruption versus real GP per capita. And if you pull it up in yeah. your Twitter feed, the bottom line is less corruption means more wealth for everybody. So when you ask, is it Japan? Why is it Switzerland? Look at his chart. Lack of corruption, trust in the financial system, trust yeah. in the rule of law means that you have a higher confidence in parking your assets in that jurisdiction because you're going to get the return of that capital. And so let, let me push there, back a little bit on that. There's a lot. Well, and it's not just the one thing, right? There's a number of dimensions to this. But one of them is this trust and faith in whatever underlying governance and rule of law you have in a country that you're dealing with or that you're putting the, your assets into. There was an interesting story a while back. I think it was just after COVID hit. And, and once again, the yen and the Swiss franc caught a bid and everybody was talking about the safe haven currencies again. Yeah. And, and they were explaining a little bit of the mechanics. So all the things that you guys are describing is absolutely correct. Rule of law and, and, and sort of the cortisol level of the citizens of these countries is much lower because you're not afraid to get shot. You're, 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 you're not afraid you know, to, to, to be lacking in shelter or all these things. But the mm -hmm. dynamic they were explaining was these are relatively small, homogeneous countries. They tend to invest abroad quite a bit. And whenever there's a global risk-off environment, what happens is they repatriate their assets. So they bring their, uh, their, their money home. And that, that dynamic of selling out whatever currency they were invested in, whether it's the dollar or the or, or, or the euro or whatever, or any emerging market uh, currency, converting it back to the yen or the Swiss franc and bringing that home, that dynamic, once there's a risk-off environment, by the investors of, that own, of those countries, of Japan and Switzerland, mm -hmm. is what brings this, this bid, this, this uh, upward... But 
drift into those currencies. So, so that's I, th I think describes a little bit of the dynamic as to why we see these currencies being uh, such safe havens. Yeah, sure. And, and I also say though, guys, I mean, we're talking about corruption here. We're not talking. I don't think Alf meant for this to be a um, you know Nordic country versus the U.S. I think it's more Nordic country versus Argentina, because look, the strongest currency right now is the U.S. dollar, right? In spite of what, I mean, in 19, in, in the early 70s, we, we uh, detached from gold, the gold standard. And it was supposed to be the end of the dollar, and it wasn't, right? It became the reserve currency they've managed to have uh, to give the world a belief that, you know, their assets are safe with me, and we're going to have the reserve currency be a strong dollar. And for the most part, a complex, somewhat reasonable economy that is does run with the rule of law, that there is... Uh, uh, a way for you to, to have recourse if anything does happen, corruptions at its minimum. Mm -hmm. So Canada is the same thing, also not with the gold standard, but just through their actions and through the rule of law, they have a, a stronger dollar versus their rural countries, right? Now, these two tiny nations, you can talk about all the intricacies you described, Richard, as being one of the reasons why they're probably seen as uh, maybe a level above in terms of... Um, of U.S. and Canadian and Aussie and, and U.K. and Euro and U.K. dollars. But, you know, it's really the developed nations currencies continue to be fairly strong. You know, Richard, Richard said something that was was really interesting because the yen carry trade, which was uh, here. Here was the yen carry trade for those people who are not living this stuff. It was feeling good about the global economy. So what I'll do here is I will borrow in yen. I'm in London, let's say. Uh, so I'm, I don't even have any relationship with Japan and I'm going to, I don't know, buy a, a, a winery in New Zealand. Right. So I'm going to, I'm going to borrow in, in JGBs for really, really basement lending rates because they've been doing QE for 25 years. And then I'm going to buy this risky asset. Like, a, you know, I sometimes I'll say like over in Australia, you, know, you buy like a, a Melbourne apartment with that. that. And then, uh Oh, okay. Now here comes Bear Stearns is collapsing. Right. And so, now I need to sell the apartment in Melbourne or the, or the, you know, the, the, uh, the winery in New Zealand. And I need to you now get my money back in and pay the loan off. And so what ends up happening is, is the yen weakens as I'm putting that on. And then as I reverse it in the Bear Stearns panic or something like that, the yen strengthens. That's, that's essentially what, what Richard was pointing out. And, and that was a reliable reaction. It was like, yeah, you know, Mike, he was be like, Oh, the market really sold off hard today. I tell you, in 2005. Well, you know, the yen rallied that day. Mm. Uh, that was like definite, just like today. Oh, the you know, market sold off really hard. Uh Oh, meta parent, Facebook parent probably had a rough day, right? These are all just the proxies for risk on. And then what happened was, it was like, well, the Japanese are not the only ones at zero interest rate policy anymore. And so now like, well, maybe I'll borrow some, some Swedish Krona and, and buy that winery or maybe I'll buy or maybe I'll borrow US dollars and do it because well Powell was at zero too right I mean we had the 19 trillion in negative debt or you know really what you maybe borrow in is euros if you're a corporate remember we had corporate triple A's in Europe getting negatives and maybe even double A's getting negative yields there at the at the peak of QE. And so now what's happened is is we have a lot of these things have been have changed. Yeah, you know, we had we had rules, quote unquote rules, because the market doesn't have any rules that were in place 
which were there's a panic market's selling off. Give me some, some, some Google and some Facebook and so on and get me out of like energy. That was, that used to be the trade. And now it's, Oh, there's a panic. Get me out of the fangs. Right. Uh, Maybe the yen rallies, but maybe it sells off because the yen carry trade is no longer a thing. And so now there's a lot of, there's a lot of things thrown into the mix here that have thrown people for a loop. And the, one of the problems for the last year has been, uh Oh, the stock market's selling off because also at the exact same time, the bond market is selling off. And, you know, we, we've, you don't know what 2023 brings if it's going to if the trades are going to be different but generally speaking the good little rule of thumb has been if it was kicking everything's butt from 2009 to 2021 and you think that the bond market has trouble ahead of it that's probably what's going to underperform in 23 by my best guess um yeah, that's it. We're back to we're back to the original theme when we started this conversation. We were describing investor psychology, right? Behavioral, mm. the behavioral component of all this, and 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 you were talking about Tina, but really the 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 major driving force of what you described is recency bias. I mean, we have short mm. memories. We really have short memories. I mean, it takes there, there's very few money managers that are still active today that have seen stocks and bonds lose money together. And yeah. so I think people ha- are, are, are still in, in, to some degree shocked. They're, they're, they're still believing that they can buy the dip to some degree. And, and the shoe has yet to drop to, for, for a lot of these people that, I mean, partly is they're, they're still hoping that, you know, inflation is going to come down. They're going to mm. be back to, to Tina dynamics. Well, look, look at the summer rally to your point, Richard. Uh, it was a reflexive bounce of, bought btfd by the freaking dip right and 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 uh you know the the regime is different but but it, but it's interesting because let's talk about the economy because in the u.s economy seems to continue to be strong right? no, no, no i disagree wholeheartedly 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 disagree well in a second but the, the 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 what you're seeing in earnings is not reflective of what you're feeling here mike right yet yet no right? six and so i i i disagree we have global growth imploding across the world you have 60 percent of the yield curve inverted that was 70 percent a month ago so, so you I'm take the u.s the economy here right i'm i'm talking about the u.s yield curve I'm I'm talking about the U.S. The only indicator, the only holdouts in the U.S. economy. If you look at a broad swath of economic indicators that are leading indicators for recession, so we have a a problem in that everyone tries to now cast everything, and the now casts have are just starting to turn over, but they're now casting. If we look at the leading indicators, they are all saying. We're 11 out of 15 of them are saying, hey, it's a recession. You need four to safely make a, re- a recession call. So we have 11 of them that are not saying the economy is strong. The labor, labor is one holdout for sure, which, by the way, is largely lagging. And if you dig a little bit deeper and you look at states that are more early indicators for unemployment claims, you'll see they're already turning up. 
So, so this is kind of what I wanted lot. to get to. Which states, which states are the early? So I hadn't really thought about that. So some states are going to give me a better guidance. Which ones do you know offhand? Which ones? I, I don't know. I can look them up, but they are the more marginal states where there's more of a transient and sensitivity. They're not like, you know, the New York or the main manufacturing hubs. Mm. Like those things are a little bit more. They hold in. It's sort of like those in, in a, if I can make the corollary in the index sense, right? You The generals get sold last and they support mm-hmm. a lot of times that index. And same thing in employment, that there's these very large states that really kind of hold in the most. And what you want to look at is a little bit more of the early warning states to give you a sense of where you may be heading on a like grander scale. industrial base. Right. So, like that. So you get industrials being because it's highly cyclical. And then so the, some Midwestern state with big industrial base might be the first to go, whereas a more service base, something like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's, so so it's, now I'm going like to steal a, that concept from you and I'm going to make like well, I, we'll, we'll follow up. I'll, I'll, play I'll, with the, I'll just follow up the, the, the information on that. I'll send you the, the sort of the. This is kind of exactly what I wanted goes. to get at, Mike. This is what I wanted okay. to get at, right? So I'm with you on all the forward looking indicators. The problem is that what you hear when people talk up, when, when the talking heads on CNBC and whatever, they're asking them about the economy now, right? That now casting mm-hmm. is that right. we're still good. You're looking at uh, earning expectations to be on trend for, uh, over the next 12 months versus the last three years. They, like that's, they're expecting the same trend of earnings growth, right? The, gen, the, the analysts in the street. And so the now casting group is saying, hey, we're still strong. This is a weird recession. If it is a recession, I don't care where the yield's inverted, right? Um, and so let's assume for a second, what? Well, uh, again, I'm not saying I, can, I don't so, care. I'm saying they're so, not caring. Right? No, like I, I agree. This is this is there, the there's error. a big disconnect between I, financial I, markets and the economy. I think we want to put more of an emphasis on the leading indicators because that's where we're going. I think the error is trying to do now cast now cast is going to tell you, OK, now we're in a recession. Well, what sure. use is that when markets are off 30 percent? It's not. It's and not, and but, you're like, I'm in recession. Like that's like an NBER recession. That's revisionist history. But what's shocking to me is it, it, it's not. And what's shocking yeah. to me, and Jeff, you pointed this out in the beginning of the call, is that rate hikes have been the biggest driver of the drawdown in equities, right? Mm-hmm. Rates are being priced in, right? The, the QT needs to be priced in, right? Even though in spite of the fact that we'll be executing on it this month, the Fed will, it's priced in. What doesn't seem to be priced in is this is the hit to, to earnings, the, the future hit to earnings. The expectations there, what it's not priced into the market at all, right? So market timing is all about what's priced in and what isn't. I feel like rates are priced in, I feel like quantitative tightening is priced in, but the economic hit to earnings does not seem to be priced in yet. And that's so kind of where I, I'm I, saying. I, I guess we, we would we would differ in that opinion, and that I, I don't really think. I want to hear full, Jeff's expertise yeah, on no, the that, earnings. That's fair though. enough, but the, the full impact of rates, I don't think, has been priced in either. That would be my my sense. The only thing that you can look at across a broad swath of economic indicators that are forward looking that is at all positive is labor. And uh, maybe, maybe there was, you know, there was a marginal turn up in, in, uh, in ECRI's weekly, uh, you know, forward looking indicator, which is, you know, it's, there's, there's a, there's a possibility that it's a shallow recession. It's possible. I mean, it, there's a lot, there's a lot of work to do to make that happen though. Anyway, go ahead, Jeff. I, I'll, I digress. 
Sure. I mean, S&P earnings is the million dollar question. Um, and the, the street thinks that they're going to grow 8% in 2022 and 8% again in 2023. Um, and then, so what I do is I have to do two things, try to figure out if something leads that like what Mike was saying um, and figure out if that, if those forecasts are above or are too rosy or, or too pessimistic. And then also in so doing, figure out what do I want to be pulled up or on relative to something else inside that stock market? So I have two things I can easily get wrong. Now, it seems to me that those earnings are going to woefully disappoint. Um, certainly maybe next year, because it's got a little bit of a lag effect between these tightening lending standards that I'll mention to you guys. And then as those disappoint, I need to, as a stock market, sell something. And that thing that I, as the stock market, have been selling in 22 is discretionary in tech. Now, maybe it's because the disappointment is coming out of utilities and staples. But that doesn't make much sense to me. Um, that, that a situation where the earnings are all, uh, just fine in those sectors, but the utilities are laying an egg and staples are laying an egg. So why do those disappoint next year? Well, I've got a couple leading indicators that I think are plain as day. One is, you know, it's kind of like, um, let me think of an analogy. Maybe I don't have one, but if I ask you, how was the weather on Friday over at the beach? Well, it's like January. It's going to not be good on Saturday, but it was August. And so it's hot and then hot again. Well, okay. What are we doing with the S and P 500? We are, um, Gauging the health of big business. So one way I can figure out whether or not big business is healthier now is maybe I can ask a bunch of small businesses because it's kind of correlated. It should be highly correlated, like a 0.9. So we have measures on small businesses. It's the NFIB survey. National Federation of Independent Businesses are serving like a laundry list of businesses. And then they ask them this laundry list of questions. And the question is, is, what do you anticipate your sales are going to be like in the next six months? What do you anticipate your earnings are going to be like in the next six months or your earnings right now or your sales right now or your availability for credit? All these things that they ask them and they ask them about earnings in the last three months. And I think the data series is 1985 to present and it looks like uh, a bungee cord. So that's the NFIB. And they overlay that with the year over year change in the S&P 500 and they look like they, they, they look like they're tied at the hip. That's one of them. And then the other one is you can take a look at the New York Fed Senior Loan Officers Survey, which seems to me to be in direct alignment with, help me guys, somebody throw me out a 10-year T-note yield, 3.3, 3. 3.4? 3. Yeah, call it 3.4. Okay, let's call it 3.4, and then let's call a mortgage rate six. Some people are saying six and a quarter, some are, you know, whatever. Let's say it's six. Yeah, six and a quarter, six. Okay, let's uh, go with treasury. Treasury is at uh, 3.45. Okay, the 30 year mortgage is at 6.02. All right, six. Okay, six minus 350 is 250. Okay, so 250 over when you normally it's like 150 over. So we have tightening of lending standards in that one part of your loan book, mortgage lending, 
corroborated by what did the New York Fed senior loan officers survey respondents say on that 14% of them said across my entire loan book, I am, yes, I am tightening credit in the third quarter, which is a fresh data point because it's third quarter. And then boom, overlay that on year over year S&P. This is like what I, this is what I was doing when I was 25 years old. Like, Hey kid, here's a Bloomberg terminal, find something that leads something else. And we're going to put it in the chart book. That's like, that's like what I did for, that's what I do all these years. And it's saying S&P earnings are going to lay an egg. So, you know, it's like, well, I'm from a value shop. That's good news for wisdom tree. Because I think it means, uh-oh, if this stock market, 38, 3,900 on the S&P, and if it goes down to 34, 35, whatever it goes down to, I don't know, maybe it goes up. Seems to me that the street will have to do two things. One, it will have to down revise those earnings growth projections down, which you do need to account for. Maybe we already know that. That's part of it. It's kind of like the unwritten rule on the street that they always kind of revise them down. But are they revising it down from 8% growth to three or four percent growth, or to red ink, and in that case, what are they selling? I would think they'd be selling something like the Russell two thousand growth, small cap growth, which is like twenty eight percent. What is it? Twenty eight percent by market cap, negative earnings. Yeah, so long duration assets that are going to get well, bingo. Long duration assets, and I'm probably running over your time here because, as we just talked about, three forty five on a ten year, call it three and three quarters on a two year. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense for these stretched type, give it to me at zero interest rate policy type assets. Suddenly, suddenly you can get talk about utilities and not get laughed out of the room. That's what this market is giving us. It's because of leading indicators. So well, that's the, the, other, the other thing, Jeff, is pricing in the fact that, as you alluded to, Rodrigo, earlier, okay, if we're going to have positive real rates, are we going to get to 2% inflation where a three and a half, 10 year is the right rate? I don't, we are. And if we get to the, 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 the long run rate of inflation being three and a half, that's five and a half percent yields or four and a half, four and a half to 5% in order to get to a real yield. So now we've also got these long duration assets with falling earnings yields that have to have further uh, discounts to their cash flow. Um, uh, imparted to them to make it attractive enough longer term to buy those assets for a return. Like this is, it's not just the inflation and then, and then a further discount has to occur because the volatility of the inflation that we're facing is an order of magnitude wider, right? The distribution of outcomes here. And this is, this is, I think a really good point here. We're talking about a lot of uncertainty. So everyone should realize that a lot's going to happen. A lot we're talking about. None of it's probably going to happen, but some other (laughs) stuff is going to happen. But what we can say confidently, I think, is that Mm -hmm. distribution of outcomes has much fatter tails and is a much flatter distribution. And we have less certainty of the outcomes. Contrast that to the last 30 years prior to December 31st, uh, 2021, where rates were coming in inflation volatility was squeezing, allowing you to pay more and more for those longer and longer duration assets. We are now unwinding that. On top of that, the potential contraction in, in, in earnings. Uh, Ooh, let me run with something here. Let me, go how for long it. do you guys go for? It's been a while. As long as you want. Another 10 minutes, Jeff. Let me run. I'll, I'll, I'll stay here for as long as you want. 
this is this is fascinating because you know go back to like why do I want to buy you know the the, the proverbial um, toothpaste company with a three or four percent yield rather than the speculative endeavor. Um, you know what as a one man business operator, uh, a restaurant owner that I might be or something like that. What would I do for a living as a one person business that everybody can identify a restaurant owner? Let's go with it. Well, like what's the best restaurant that I could own in terms of me, Jeff Wanniger sleeping at night. It's probably a stop in on the way to work, grab a cup of coffee business. Cause I know really, really confidently what my Monday through Friday sales are going to be. Uh, and I even know, I even know, if there's 75% chance of rain, I can also probably predict my coffee sales, coffee and a donut. But what's really tough is if I have the, the $50 steakhouse and I don't know if there's going to be a one hour wait at Saturday night or whether there's going to be here, just take the great booth over there by the window. I don't know because I have more business uncertainty. And this maybe this goes back to what we were talking about earlier with why I want to domicile assets in country A versus country B. The greater my sense of 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 uncertainty with respect to my Brazilian real or, or my Brazilian inflation, which is all over the place compared to the safety and surety of let's say 1990s era U S inflation, right? Operating a business in country A versus country B. This throws Mike Philbrick for a loop on his asset allocation. Right. When I got German PPI at like 38 right now, and I'm supposed to form an opinion on the future of German industry. That's my job. Like at Wisdom Tree, Jeff, have an opinion on German industries. Like, and guess what? The <laughs> whole street is in the same boat as me. At least, at least the four of us are honest about it. It's tough. Wow. And so we have more business. Hold on, can this hear this? So we have more business risk. So do I want to pay? 20 times earnings for some broad market, or do I want to pay 18 or 16 for that broad market? Maybe that's why multiples are so low in the 1970s in the United States. And maybe that's why some of these countries always have single digit multiples. Don't know if you can get a fair day in court and so on. And so you start to wonder, okay, Mike Philbrick lays out a case where we don't know where inflation is going to be, but we know it's going to be doing this rather than what it, hopefully would do in a well-ordered society, which is this. And because of it, do we want those Russell 2000 growth companies is essentially what the situation presents itself as opposed to the toothpaste and soda pop company, you know, uncertainty premium essentially is what you're talking about. Yeah. Which is a regional thing up here in the upper Midwest. They call it pop down in in, uh, Texas. They just call it Coke. Did you guys know that? That all soda in Texas and certain pockets of it, they just call it Coke. No. And most of the US they call it what do they call it in Canada? Soda? We call it pop. It's I thought pop. it was more of a, a, a US thing calling it soda, I thought. But well, anyway. I'm from Brazil, yeah. Jeff, the country that you keep beating on. So I I I've only come to Canada. But anyway. <laughs> Some places call it soda pop. Some call it I think. 30 or 40 states probably call it soda. And then there's a few states up here in the upper Midwest where it's pop and it hits you. It hits you like a ton of bricks when you, when you arrive in like an Illinois or a Wisconsin as a, as a new arrival, like I did in my twenties, you want to pop like, Oh yeah, that's right. They say pop. 
Um, so I said soda pop. So how about that? So I don't know what state that might be. Um, so I digress. No, but look, I, I think that's the point. If you look at history during periods of inflation volatility, because inflation is never just inflation all the time, right? Like, listen, mm-hmm. look at it. Look at Argentina, right? They'll be fine. They'll be fine. They'll be fine. They'll have 10,000% inflation. They'll do something, bring it back. They'll be fine. They'll be fine. So inflation is volatile. And every time we've had periods in the 1940s, you also saw PE ratios go, go down, right? So the multiple gets contracted because you need the higher risk premium for investing in a company that has more uncertainty than ever, right? Mm-hmm. We've had a one-dimensional market for the last 40 years for the most part, which is more liquidity or less liquidity, high growth or low growth. If it's low growth, mad liquidity. If it's high growth and eh, moderate liquidity, you've never, the Fed never really has had to deal with inflation as this kind of second layer that you need to mm-hmm. account for, right? now. So now the Fed is limited by its what, what it can do to fight inflation. So it's not like, oh, that's what inflation is up. The Fed's going to deal with it. We'll be perfectly fine. It's going to be a soft landing. We'll be great. Mm-hmm. So the more the more inflation volatility there is, the more business volatility there is, the lower the multiple historically that has been needed to get a bid in the market. Mm-hmm. Right now, I was just looking at the uh, Schiller PE, right? So we peaked at, let's go back to the 2000. In 2000, we were 44 Schiller PE, right? We got to 38. I didn't even know that. We got to 38 last year, mm-hmm. right? And we're at 28 sure. now, Okay. The historical average, the median is 15. It's never stopped at 15. It always deeper, right? Yeah. And in, in 1920, I, I haven't tweeted the Schiller PE in a while. And, and sorry, sorry, did you and guys Siegel, Siegel has um, yeah, we heard uh, some, some very cogent remarks with respect to, um, you know, like record keeping in the old days and just, you know, there's, there's better regulations and that maybe the market would require a, uh, a higher multiple. And so I, he makes a lot of good points on that. One of the, th- the cool things about when you're talking about, I think you said, did you say 44 was the March, 2000, 38 in probably November of 21, November of 2021. Yeah. And, yeah, and, and then that would be the Schiller PE. So that everybody knows that's the, the 10 year rolling average of earnings and price divided by that. And then that way we can get it across the business cycle. That's for everybody to, and uh, last time I looked at that chart, the thing about it was in 1920, a very critical year because we as a, as a market just kind of that roaring 20s thing about a year ago. That Schiller PE was like four because, I mean, it was still finishing off a war and also the Spanish flu at the time, which Spanish flu peaked, stopped in 1921. It was in the end of that pandemic. And so we were like, oh, yeah, it's going to be. The roaring 20s was what everybody was saying when we come out of COVID. I'm like, well, you guys, the, the starting PE multiple was like a four or a five. Yeah, was, April, tw- yeah. April 2020 was 5.6. Yeah, okay, 5.6. And so there is that big difference. And look, we need to unwind this market. The, the great news is that we, for the last year we have been. Uh, there's a lot of the real, real speculative goof is still down 70, 80, 90%. Um, but I, I, I worry. I worry about certain periods of time in the stock market lore. Right? I mean, we, from 1968 to 1982, the S&P 500 had a bunch of bulls and a bunch of bears and ended up in 1982 
right where it was in 1968. And you got a dividend along the way. We always want to point that out. And what I keep pointing out to people is, I mean, maybe it's because the U.S. is more dynamic than the EFA components, EAFE, right? Europe, you know, Europe, Australasia, Far East, MSCI EFA being the big index that we as an industry talk about for de- developed equities. Well, we're like 100 points north of the March 2000 high in MSCI EFA, which is the second most used index I use on a daily basis, right? Like in my business, we talk S&P 500 or Russell 1000. Then we talk EFA. Then we talk MSCI EM. There's like the three that an equity strategist talk about. There's a second one. And it applies to everything under the sun that's not emerging and not United States, right? Italy, Germany, France, UK, Singapore, you know, and so on. And that thing is right back on a price index basis where it was 22 years ago. And yet you talk to Americans and they can't conceptualize a situation where the S&P 500 was 4,800 in the end of 2021 and maybe the end of 2026 or 2031. I don't know. Maybe it'll be 4,800 just like it was in the year 2021. And what do you do from a portfolio perspective? I mean, I don't know that I know, but I well, think uh, it's clipping a dividend coupon. I mean, I, I don't yeah. know. I mean, it's, I, I'm, I'm, I'm so back to it. the back to the same idea of housing, right? Where they were like, I don't need to, I don't need to get a yield on what I own because the cap, the capital appreciation of my house is going to go up 20% a year. Right. We're going to have to go back to like, what am I getting paid for to wait here? Mm-hmm. Right. And Mike, you all, I don't know if you're magazine. I can't remember what the absolute number was, but you mentioned 1966 to 82, Jeff, as being kind of like a flattish and zero returning um, mm-hmm. price value for the Dow. Right. So for that 16-year period, you made no money uh, on price. And then for the following 16 years to 1997, you you ha- annualized at 16%. Yeah. Now, what that was that was the financial markets doing that. But the earnings rate was nearly identical for the for both periods. Mm. Right. So that, yeah. you, you don't need, and I can't remember what the absolute number was, but the, the point the point stands, right? It's we as portfolio managers. We have to disaggregate what the economy is doing and what the growth rate is doing. So maybe we are at a growth rate. Maybe the analysts are all right. And maybe you know, we're, we're on trend. But mm-hmm. the multiple is what's going to matter for financial markets. And that's what's going to matter for your portfolio. right? And, and there's going to be areas that are going to suffer, are going to go from their highs to very, very lows. They've already happened, as you said, in, in, the, uh, in the NASDAQ. right? Mm-hmm. A lot of companies there down 70% probably won't recover for a while. And there's yeah. going to be areas and sectors that are going to matter that own real things and have utility and pay dividends and, uh, and are tangible and can push forward their inflation costs and so on. So this is kind of where we're talking about a, a market, a financial market that is currently talking about the S&P 500 index continues to be dominated by um, high-flying, no-yielding assets, <laughs> where the small percentage of the, of the S&P is real things, right? Yeah. I mean, I think com- commodities are, what, 2% of the index right now? Yeah, it's right? So we're going to need, this is where active management, I think, starts coming in. If the S&P is going to flatline for a, for a prolonged period of time financially, even though earnings are going up, where do you want to rotate your portfolio toward? And I think you're right, Jeff. Yeah. If that's going to happen, you know, value players seem to have a better grasp at, at yeah. earning some yield. So I, 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 Jeff, I, 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 I posted a Twitter 
storm on that last, the Q4 <laughs> of last year, just on the earnings growth through that period and how it was the same. The difference was the initial conditions. The initial conditions were a high multiple in 1968, mm-hmm. right? On those earnings. What happened is the earnings grew, but you went from a multiple of 16 to a multiple of like six in 1982. You have to go look back at that. And this is a critical point, I think, to understand and something that asset returns when rates are rising are much lower. So your equity risk premium on um, on on equities is, you know, normally 6%. Well, when rates are rising, it's zero. So, and it's, this was covered in, um, you know, the, um, the Dimson report that the Credit Suisse re-ups every year and they talk about it. So they put it out in February and they show these charts. Listen, when you have rising rates, there's no equity risk premium. And literally they just took and looked at when is the Fed raising rates? What's the equity risk premium? And when are they reducing rates? And what's the equity risk premium you get on, mar- on the whole market? Well, on average, you get almost no equity risk premium while rates are rising. And when they're falling, you get all of it, which is not shocking. 1982 to today, we've had massive equity risk premium. Now we're starting to, now, is this going to be persistent, pervasive, term, rates are going to rise forever, or are we going to get a Fed pivot? Mm. Is it going to be too dangerous for them to run the course they're running? And do they have to take rates back to zero again? Yeah, you're going to have this to be is active. all about time frames, right? Like what we're talking about is a decade. And and within within the 70s, there were bulls and bull markets and bear markets, right? Um, as the Fed and, fought and, and lost. And, and, and by the way, lost. when you had returns, the Fed was easing. And when you didn't have returns, yeah. they were tightening. No, no, no. This is the, I think short term. Could we see a, ped, a Fed pivot as they see the economic numbers in a few months? For sure. Could there well, be a rally? This Maybe. particular well, this particular factor is over the last 120 years. Just so we're clear, like th- this is a long term feature of the markets. I, I agree with you. I'm agreeing with yeah. you. I just I, I just think that within that decade of rising rates or that period of rising rates, you have zero risk premium. Like in the 70s, I'm just looking at the chart right now. Indeed, there was a zero risk premium in the 70s as they raised rates. Um, so. You know, the question, the, the thing is, what, from, a, from a portfolio construction perspective, we're not talking about the next three months, right? We're not, we're not yeah. tactical, like traders. We're not in this discussion anyway. We are certainly tactical traders at, at Resolve on the systematic front. But if you think about what, how to think about and what you need to incorporate in a portfolio for the next decade, Jeff, like, have you guys put any thought into, like, how asset allocation should be thought of? differently in the next decade versus the last decade? Well, I mean, it seems to me that, well, and and we have the old, the old adage, or at least I don't know if the industry has, but there's this old adage of just, well, just buy gold in 1970, hold it for 10 years, buy Japan in 1980, hold that for 10 years, buy tech stocks in 1990. Then I guess at the turn of the century, just buy some value stocks, then turn around 10 years later, buy some tech stocks, five trades, you're, uh, you'd be have more money than, than Warren Buffett if you did those five things. But it, that there's the market comes to these periods of time where there it's time for a regime change. Um, and the thing in the 1970s was that it was an inflation regime change. We will find out if this is one of those or whether this was just something that is a, a year or two nightmare and it goes away. 
Um, but usually these something big confronts society and everything that was working in the market just stops being that thing. Now I get, I get kind of confused because it's because I, I go back and forth. Was the something big, was it the Vietnam war? That, maybe. Um, in the seventies, you mean? Was the something big? It was, it was the Yom Kippur war. It was like the oil shock and all that sort of stuff. Right. I mean, but I'm just talking about just, you know, all of it. Kent State, the Kent State Massacre, sure, uh, yeah. Vietnam War, whip inflation now, buttons. You know, and then I go to September 11th and it's like, well, the regime change in the stock market had occurred a year and a half prior. The stock market started tumbling. So we, but we did have this generational thing, this biggest event of my lifetime. Was that the thing that got us on a different wavelength where we no longer want the, the 1990s are over? The 1990s are over. It's time for me to now in this be like that, that changed it for me, the viewer who woke up on that morning. Is it that? And then is there this change where we had a super cycle in oil and then the banks collapsed? And now it's time to get into a massive stock market bull in March of 2009. And it's no longer about emerging markets and it's no longer about crude oil, but it's about social media. Is that the thing? And I, I, I don't know. I, I kind of think I, I'm onto something here. I don't have all the answers. And I don't know, was, was COVID that thing? Like, was that just the thing where we wake up, we just operate as a society differently, where we just shake out of the last bull market? What, was it COVID? Or was it just simply, was it monetary policy? Maybe it was monetary. I don't know. But I mean, you go back to the other one we were talking about, right? We had a World War One, and we had a pandemic, and then something something happened, and we had a big bull market from 1920 to 1929. And I'm looking at this market; all of it's out the window, right? We just everything we just talked about. The yen, the yen is weakening. Tech stocks are 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 in are in the tank, right? Um, some things peaked in 2021. Other things like the proverbial apartment in San Francisco that peaked in the spring of 22, right? It's, it's very much like, you know, credit started blowing up in July of, uh, of 07. The credit crisis begins by most people's estimates of August 07. The stock market didn't want to peak until October of 07 and oil didn't want to peak until summer of 08. It's not going to all fit in perfect timing, but it seems to me all that stuff has decided it doesn't want to be the stuff anymore. House prices, the NASDAQ, some company that's getting by on easy credit and no earnings and speculators on Reddit message boards, I think it's all out. And I, I don't know if it's a new regime change, but I don't want to bet against it. So I'm on all, I'm on all, everything that didn't work for the last dozen years. That's what I'm bullish on. Just say it, man. Just say I think, it out I think, I think, <laughs> I think, I think honestly, value, value, okay. right? Is that... Like what, what value. let him talk his book. Let him value. Talk his book. He's doing it. Japan. I love Japan. Um, you know, I mean, certainly that stuff. I, I you know, I, I'm in a defensive value type mindset here, as you guys can tell from my remarks. Um, we'll have to see if, if, you know, if cash is an opportune asset class, we will at some point, very fortunately for the bond market, get to a point where, Hey, Maybe you'll get a four or five percent yield on some aggregate bonds. Fancy that. Now that that's not half bad. You know, maybe maybe that'll be a satisfactory asset class now that it has been taken out. 
Um, and I wonder, I wonder when transition happens, Jeff, when we go from, you know, the, the adjustment in rates and then bonds start to act like that counterbalance to growth shocks again. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. kind of wondering when that equilibrium to some degree reestablish itself or does it not reestablish it, itself? Is it like the 70s where it, it just doesn't, it just they're correlated for that period of time and there really is no saving grace coming from the bond risk in your portfolio? I know, I know. I, and I think about all that where all these relationships that have kind of crept up in the last year or two between fixed income and equities, how long does it last? It won't last forever. Nothing Agreed. lasts forever. Is it, is it end this week? Does it go for next year or two? If I wake up, what did we say? 340 on a 10-year? If I wake up next, this time next year and it's 240 on a 10-year, does that mean it's all back on? Mm. And, and how resilient time. is the global growth? I mean, it really doesn't look all that resilient at the moment. Yeah. But, you know, is it is there some way that it we actually get an uptick and we and we see that the the global economy can grow? Can China reopen, not mm-hmm. cause massive, you know, sort of um, resource, you know, inflation that or resource inflation is attenuated enough that global growth can overcome it? I mean, that yeah. was the, that 03 to 08 period. The initial conditions were, you know, gold 200, oil nine bucks a barrel. Right. So you came into this inflationary period, inflationary growth. Yeah. You, you know, China was building everything. And, mm-hmm. but there was so many commodities around and emissions were loose. We, we had a lot of excess supply. And so growth could grow and it wasn't choked by the lack of input and materials for that growth. That was the yeah. initial conditions. The initial conditions today, for a number of reasons, maybe ESG related uh, and whatnot, are not those initial conditions where we have abundant resources to provide cheap fuel for global growth. Yeah. It's a really tough set of circumstances. Go ahead. You've touched on something that we haven't really uh, discussed today and probably don't have uh, more time. Jeff's been more than generous with this time, but it's geopolitical risk, right? There, There is, we went through the, this period where geopolitical risk was just not something investors had to worry about all that much. And all of a sudden, the beginning of this decade, you know, smashed us all with COVID. And now the war in the Ukraine, but we mm-hmm. still had these underlying tensions that were simmering and now continue to rise between US and China. And, and, and this sort of deglobalization, which is a term that has been thrown around quite a bit. Now that is another variable that can pose a challenge for inflation and for growth, right? The, the lack of cooperation, the, the lack of availability of, of resources. So that is something investors haven't had to contend with for a long time, but seems to be front and center uh, and could pose a, a real challenge for for, for yeah. the, the Fed and other central banks to control inflation, right? Scarcity creates conflict. We are no longer having the tailwind of the peace dividend. When the Berlin Wall collapsed, and we had an opening of the Eastern block. You had all of that lower priced labor, another set of initial conditions that opened up markets and labor made a plentiful opportunity for global growth. Mm-hmm. We now have reshoring. We've got broad scarcity across a, a number of commodities, food, energy. That scarcity creates conflict. And that's the peace dividend that we have lived through over the last 
30 or 40 years, call it. That tough is comps now also, for the next decade. Yes, correct. Really tough comps. Yeah. Correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and look, I, we, I always, you know me, I like to end things in a, in a bright note, but the truth is that here's a bright note, okay? Well, I'm going to say, I think what we're saying is it's going to be a tough slog in a way that didn't happen in the last 30 years because of the great moderation, the fall on the Berlin Wall, that peace dividend. I think we're going to go through a more treacherous period. The good news is that, look, 20 years ago, if you're an investor, you didn't have ETFs, mm -hmm. right? Maybe you did have a few ETFs. You didn't have access to active management that can go long and short. You didn't have all these options that you have return stacking that we talk about all the time. I mean, the bright side for investors today is that more information than ever to tell you what's going on in this, that secular shift. You can do your own homework. And you have tools available to you that did not exist for you, only for institutions 20 years ago. You can be a private investor and an advisor with the right tools that can, that can get you not only to survive it, but actually thrive through it. Mm -hmm. And I think that the ingredients you need is to reassess the environment. You know, if it's going to be a, a place like this where you need to clip coupons, and yeah, value is certainly a place to be. Being in multi-asset long short, being able to short bonds when you need to short bonds, when you need to... Go long commodities when you need to go long commodities or short them in, in, in the kind of on the way down, as we're seeing in the last few months. These are widely available. We just haven't used them to, to the, the fullness of their potential. Now is a time to start doing homework and learning about it and thriving in this environment. Right. So that's the yeah. bright side here. Well, I, I think you're I think you're right, Rod. Like so. So I I don't we shouldn't be too negative. These but let's face the reality yes. that we're faced with. Let's look at that and say, okay, now what do we do? Well, there's a couple of things that are pretty good. Okay, so things get pretty shitty over the next decade. <laughs> well, I can tell you if that happens, had you been in the 70s and accumulating stock relentlessly through the, the, the shit, the volatility, and you've just been doing dollar cost averaging. And so it really is, are you 65 or are you 25? If mm. you're 25... You're like, send the chaos. I will buy this every month. Not a lot of people did that in the 70s, though. But if you had accumulated mm -hmm. all that wealth into 1982 and then said, oh, well, all of a sudden, you have accumulated a lot of these stocks, if you will, and then they go on this bull run. Well, that's what you want if you're in the accumulation phase. If you're in the decumulation phase, you're really going to have to start to think about how volatility impacts my funding of my retirement. I'm going to have to pay attention to risk. I'm going to have to think about actually getting a good real yield that can adjust upward. There's a lot of stuff that You're I have going to, to have to assess what the risk parameter of bonds are today. Right. Right. Are bonds safe assets is the question sure. I have to ask. Mike, I mean, you remember that in the 70s, while rates went up, people didn't want to own bonds. Because they knew every time they bought them, they got smacked yeah. in the head the next month when rates went up higher and their yeah. principal value went down. Well, the, right? the whole trade, the whole trade was actually you'd sell your bond, get the capital loss, buy a new bond at par, <laughs> do this thing over and over again to try and tax optimize your bond portfolio through the 70s. That was the, the trick of the day yeah. 
that help people manage some of the taxation issues. So I think you've got to keep your real return expectations a little bit more reasonable. We're in a rising rate environment, not a falling rate environment. You've got to pile on other risk premiums, not just the plain equity risk premium. You've got to look for value, maybe throw in some momentum. You've got to rebalance your portfolio. There's stuff you got to do in order to survive and thrive in this environment. Um, longer term, these are going to be opportunities. If we get some dislocations, you can buy that toothpaste manufacturer at a 20% discount. But I mean, that's that's an interesting thing if you're going to be buying that for 10 or 20 years and just you know holding it like a Warren Buffett style investor. You, you got to be prepared for some bumps along the way. The journey's not going to be quite, I think, well, the journey might not be quite as smooth. Who knows? Maybe we're on the cusp of a you know, it's 1982 and we're all going straight up for another 20 years. I don't know. All right. Well, on that note, uh, Jeff, let's uh, let's end up with where people can find you, your research, what you're thinking. Talk about your spaces and how you're using yeah, sure. that as a tool to communicate. Sure. The Twitter spaces. Um, well, we've been doing them. We've tended to be doing them about 5 p.m. on Monday nights. Sometimes it's changed. Right. Sometimes it's noon or what have you, but we've been doing them on, on Monday. We have Seema Modi from um, CNBC on this upcoming one on Monday. We've got it booked out well to October at this point. So that's me and Jeremy Schwartz, my colleague from Wisdom Tree. Wisdom Tree Asset Management, the, bi- the big ETF company. Uh, as you can imagine, we have a lot of dividend stuff, but we, we have a big, broad business beyond just dividends. Um, certainly there's, there's a lot of thematics. There's a lot of fixed income and so on. Yeah. We're all over Twitter. We also have the wisdom tree blog, wisdom tree research. You can find the, the written word. It's just whatever, you know, method somebody learns by, right. You learn by looking at charts on Twitter or you learn by reading a 10 pager. So re- research strategist. So I've got it all under the sun. So guys, I'm flattered that you invited me back. I, I always love doing the, doing the pod and, uh, everybody make Thanks sure. Thanks for coming. Subscribe right. Really it. appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. Like it. To all of our stuff, including Jeff's. Subscribe Make to sure everything. Yes, everything. <laughs> just hit likes. All well, no, like, 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 unsubscribe like, like, like. to everything not on this. And just anyway. <laughs> Got it. All right. Well, thanks, everyone. Great weekend, guys. Thanks, Jeff. Great weekend, guys. Thanks, all. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at InvestorsAll. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again, and see you next time. Most investors feel comfortable with their domestic equity and bond portfolios because they tend to thrive during periods of economic growth and low inflation. And we don't blame you. It's been a great ride. But it's a big world out there full of opportunities you may be ignoring. Sadly, we live in a world dominated by a fear of missing out, or FOMO. And in the last 10 years, U.S. equities and bonds have outperformed and generated massive amounts of FOMO. This hasn't always been the case. In the mid-2000s, the best-performing markets were international equities, especially emerging markets, gold and commodities. So what happens if growth collapses and inflation becomes the new norm? Or what if the U.S. dollar collapses and U.S. assets are no longer attractive? What will the new FOMO markets be? And will your portfolio keep up or be left behind? 
Enter Rational Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund, ticker RDMIX, a strategy that is designed to thrive across different markets and economic regimes. Unlike most traditional strategies that keep allocation static and let volatility happen, Adaptive Asset Allocation applies a proprietary systematic process designed to dynamically transition toward thriving asset classes and eliminate those that are not, all the while aiming for consistent volatility and stable returns. There's almost always a bull market somewhere in the world. Don't let yesterday's FOMO get in the way of tomorrow's opportunities. Instead, let Adaptive Asset Allocation help you fill in your domestic portfolio gaps. To learn more, visit RationalMF.com and check out the Rational Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund.